Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. This is a part of the writing life that readers rarely see, and that many new writers, and even some experienced ones, are rarely prepared for. My guest on this very first episode is Julie S. Lalonde. Julie is an internationally recognized women's rights advocate and public educator based in Ottawa. Her book, Resilience is Futile, The Life and Death and Life of Julie S. Lalonde, take note of that title, was published by Between the Lines in spring 2020. Take note of that date. The book is a powerful account of her experiences as someone who, while publicly advocating for women, was, in private, being stalked by an ex-partner. It was named one of the best books of the year by CBC Books and The Hill Times, and won the 2020 Ontario Speakers Award. It also won an Independent Publisher Award in 2021. A little later on, I will tell you how you can win a copy of Julie's book. Julie and I talk about how the book came about, about how firing her first agent, suffering a heart attack, dealing with a half million serious death threats, and experiencing a complete screw-up by Amazon, somehow didn't kill the book before it had even come out, and what it was like to throw a launch party just days before the entire world shut down. We also talk about the book's long afterlife, how many of the ideas she writes about in it have become even more important and urgent, and how, despite all the wild setbacks, she's proud that she did not compromise her ideals while writing it. Thank you for being part of this podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored. I was hoping just to start off, if you could just tell us about yourself a little bit and what you do. My sort of main gig is working in women's rights, women's rights advocate and public education. So my bread and butter is mostly training as many people as possible in bystander intervention to end gender-based violence. And I've been doing that work for, this is my 20th year, Um, but I also have personal experience as well. So I talk a bit about my experience of being in a violent relationship and being stalked. Um, I'm from rural Francophone, Northern Ontario, um, but I've been based in Ottawa now for the last bit. Um, and I work for myself and I have for since 2011. So I'm quite lucky that I have flexibility in my life, which allows me to kind of pursue different avenues. Your day job with these workshops and your experiences growing up really informed this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious about how it came about. Was it a conversation with someone or was it something that had been kind of in the back of your head for a while? Not at all. So it's funny because people who knew me growing up are not surprised that I did write a book because it was my big dream growing up. I wanted to be an author. I think it's like grade five or six, somewhere in like junior high, I had to write an essay for school about like, what is your dream? And I literally wrote famous author who lives alone with multiple cats. Like that was literally the essay that I wrote. (laughs) Um, And I'm just like, still looking at that. I'm like, hashtag goals. Um, But I really just wanted to be a writer. I loved reading. Um, French is my first language. And I really like perfected my English by going to the library and reading. And my parents were very, um, whatever I wanted to read, go for it. They never censored anything that I read, which I'm, you know, looking at everything going on in the world right now. I'm very grateful for that. Um, 
but then I just, you know, then I also moved to the big city and went to an English, so I went to French school my whole life, but I went to Carleton. Um, and so I realized like, oh, I'm actually not the most incredible writer. I just maybe was like a, you know, big fish, small pond situation, but oh, look, I'm really good at this advocacy stuff and this public speaking stuff. And so I thought that was really my vocation was the stories that I wanted to tell, the interviews that I did, um, you know, all of the things that I did in university and in grad school and, you know, working for, uh, I had a radio show on campus and that was kind of, I was like, oh, that's my avenue. Um, and then I came forward about my experience of having been stalked for over a decade by an ex-partner. And I was approached from the Globe and Mail um, to sort of talk about my experience in the context of the new consent curriculum that was getting into the schools. Uh, and then I was approached by a magazine to write a, an article about my experience. Uh, and so it just sort of like kind of snowballed from there. And then an agent approached me and said I should write a book. And I honestly thought it was spam. I thought it was somebody who was, you know, I get a lot of hate mail in the work that I do. Uh, and so I thought, oh, this is someone just trying to like, I don't even know, is that like book fish me or something? <laughs> that would be the lo most low stakes catfishing I can imagine is a, is a fake <laughs> email from, a, from an agent. And then like a couple months later, he wrote back and was like, oh, I'm so-and-so, I know so-and-so who knows you. And I was like, oh, I know her. She's a real person. And so I connected with her. She's like, no, 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 he's a real agent who really wants you. Um, so that's kind of how it happened. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. And then eventually I ended up firing him because he didn't believe, I think didn't believe in the way that I wanted to tell that story. And that was kind of my first of many hurdles where I realized that um, there's a, there's a survivor story that people like, there's a template that people feel good reading, and I was outside of that mold. And so, you know, he was pitching to all these big publishers who were like, oh, we love this true crime, like element to the story, but didn't want the feminist analysis. And I was like, well, without the analysis, like, it's not the book I would ever write. Um, and so it ended up being like, I was sort of like pushed into it. I mean, it wasn't coerced. I was very mm -hmm. much consenting to doing it, but I was sort of really reticent about it and then I had an agent and I thought okay this is good this is I'm making moves um and then he just didn't get my vision I guess and didn't understand why this was so important to me and so I fired him and I thought okay well you know that was that's a cool idea but it didn't happen um and then it was actually giving a talk to book publishers around sexual harassment in the workplace this was at the height of Gomeshi sort of right before Me Too um, and really talking to publishers about what do you do if you're representing a Gomeshi? You know, what do you do in that context? Uh, and one of the publishers was in the audience and thought, I don't, there's something here, you have a story to tell, maybe we take your workshops, we turn it into a book. And I thought, well, funny story, I have this, you know, manuscript that I've kind of sort of been working on because I had an agent, but I fired him and it's just kind of sitting there. And they were like, oh, well, send that to us. Uh, and they loved it. And we're like, we wouldn't publish it without the feminist analysis. So you found the right home. Um, and so it was a very windy path right. that I did not expect to be on at all. Um, but then found myself uh, in the hands of a really supportive publisher that really got why I was trying to break this mold of a traditional survivor memoir. Just to go back to that issue of, you know, your agent having this one vision of it and you having this other vision of, of how this story needs to be told. 
I know a lot of I'm I'm you know friends with a lot of writers and a number of them have spoken about some version of this Faustian bargain that they come up against where it's this will get sold if it's this kind of story and it will do well. I mean, I think every writer has that at some point in the, the creation of a book. Was it a difficult decision to to fire that agent and say, no, it is this? Or was it, did you have a moment where you're like, could I make it that book that they want it to be? No, and 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 it's because it was the same reason why I didn't, <clears throat> didn't want to write a book in the first place and why I was so like reticent about accepting the offer to even write a book. And I had to be persuaded by people in my own life. Like these, yeah, these survivor stories and the template is, you know, I had a wonderful life or maybe I had a terrible life, but then this especially heinous thing happened to me. And then I got sober. I found Jesus. I did this. And now I'm thriving. I'm an Olympian. You know? And that's not true. I don't think for anybody, but it certainly wasn't true for me. Um, and I think those stories actually harm survivors because they set up this premise that like, if you don't have that arc, if you don't have a clean ending of like, now I'm healed, I'm well, I'm doing okay, then you're failing at it. You're not properly healed. You're not doing enough work. Um, and so it sets up this, I think this expectation that is impossible to fill. Um, and so that's why I was like, I'm not telling this story. I'm not doing it. Like, what would be the point of me just rehashing this thing just to bum people out? Um, and then people are like, no, but like, think about how you could integrate the work that you do and turn it into almost like an educational memoir where you're teaching people about the insights. And I'm like, okay, okay. So then to have some say, we just want the story. I was like, no, that's why I didn't want to write a book in the first place. Like I will not do it. Um, so I think it was not a difficult decision because it was like, at this point, what am I paying you for? Frankly, like if I were to get a deal, you didn't really do much. But I think it was more the really like, oof, like to have all of these people say like, the only thing we care about is the gory details of how you were harmed. Um, and I think that like sitting with that reality of like, oh my God, is this, is, what, is this what entails to tell your story? Like, what the hell was Maya Angelou up to? Like, why would you write nine of these things? Um, so that was, I think, the more difficult realization, I think, that even if I write this book, it's not going to land the way that most people are going to be comfortable with. And it probably won't do well because it's clearly seen as very niche. Um, and so I think that was kind of the bigger heartache of it was like, I had taken so long to psych myself up to doing it and then to be like, oh yeah, no, actually no. And I, I think I would have actually preferred if they were just like, your writing is terrible. Right. <laughs> right. Like if you're just like this, the quality of this is garbage. But the fact that they were like, no, like the writing is really strong. Da 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 da. This person is clearly, um, you know, as you know, in Canada, part of getting a book deal is also, can you sell a book? Right. And they were like, okay, well, this woman has a platform. She could sell a book. It would market well, da da da. But ugh don't want the feminist rants uh and I was like well then that's who I am <laughs> and yeah. you can't get one without the other they don't want the buzz kill stuff yeah or yeah they just want it to be like oh my just like flaying out your trauma for people to gawk at and to observe and to be horrified by like as if that was compelling and I don't think that's just the world of you know books and movies and like I see it within my own sector for years people thought we need to have really graphic posters with black eyes and bloody noses to really drive the message gotta shock people to get them to care and there's actually no research to back that up <laughs> um but I think especially you know people think about my book and the timing of trying to around me too and Gomeshi but also I think it's important how it was also like nothing was more popular than true crime and like, that's also, a, I think, really 
interesting for us to think about, right? Like how the appeal of this book was that it was like, it had elements of sexual assault and gender-based violence, but also was like gory and people were super into, tell me all of the ways that this person brutalized you. Um, and so it should have sold. And that was kind of ultimately my decision to fire him was like, okay, well, women are telling their stories, memoir, women's stories are doing well, even collections of essays, right? Like Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist had popped off at that time. And people thought a book of essays about feminism is like a bestseller, but they were like, yeah, there's an appetite for women's stories. There's an appetite for true crime. And so I thought, man, if you can't sell this book in this context, um, then you just, you're never going to do it. So I might as well yeah. just give up. And I would a hundred percent drag them, but I honestly can't remember who it was, but one of the big, big publishers literally said oh we're already publishing a woman's story next year oh and you're like eh, boy. <laughs> we got you're one like, oh, we got oh, one we, we can't publish like, oh, two so it's highlander i was like okay cool <laughs> i think that's what drives most writers in terms of like wanting awards wanting sales it's not money it's not ego it's really just like just so i can say i told you so totally I told you this so you've got to tell someone in your life i told you so I'm just breaking in here for one moment to tell you how you can win a copy of Julie S. Lalone's book, Resilience is Futile. BTL Books is very generously offering to send a copy of Julie's book to two of my listeners. All you have to do is go to nathanwhitlock.ca slash contact and send me a note with the subject line, Resilience is Futile Giveaway. Send that before 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time on Friday, May 5th, and I will do a random draw. Again, go to nathanwhitlock.ca slash contact and send me a note with the subject line, Resilience is Futile Giveaway, before 5 p.m. on Friday, May 5th. Now, back to the conversation. What kind of expectations did you have? I knew that, um, you know, it's fairly niche in the sense that it's a feminist memoir about stalking, um, you know, wrote the book because we don't talk about stalking. So I knew that it wasn't, you know, necessarily going to be um, of interest to that many people. But I thought, you know, maybe within my sector in particular, like there was a lot of anticipation and excitement within my colleagues of like, oh, this will be so great for us to have at the shelter and the sexual assault center for other survivors to feel seen, um, to really feel connected to. Uh, I had an experience that I talk about in the book about presenting to the Royal Military College and it went sideways and it became a national news story. And so I thought, oh, well, there'll be some interest in that particular chapter because we were still talking about sexual assault in the military. So I thought of it more as sort of like, like these little pockets of spaces where it would do well, but I didn't see it having sort of mainstream commercial success because I just was like, it's too niche. Um, in terms of its approach, not the subject matter, but the approach, I guess. Um, and then, you know, my family jokes that if it wasn't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Um, and so it was really this, you know, kind of summer 2019 in the last of it, um, feeling excited, nervous, but really also, frankly, you know, going to therapy every week to talk about what to do once the worst things that have ever happened to me are in the world um how to process the fact what I knew to be true which is I was going to get a lot of disclosures from survivors on tour and in media how do I answer those really hard 
AM right wing talk radio show questions that are always really awful. Like I was kind of doing the emotional prep of like, your trauma is going to be in the world. Then late summer, 2019, I had a heart attack and, um, which like, I'm, you know, I was 34. I'm vegan. I'm a power lifter. Like it was a shock to everybody. Um, so I actually ended up missing the only time I missed a book, book deadline, which the keener in me was really upset about, um, because I was like, I'm in the hospital. Um, and then January of 2020, Kobe Bryant died. I was like, Hey, everyone's reviewing this guy. I'm a huge basketball fan, but he was a rapist. So like, keep that in consideration. Um, I got half a million death threats. The police told me to leave my home. I had to flee the country for a while. Um, I had to pause all book promotion because my, even my publisher agreed, like, we can't guarantee your safety with the amount of threats that you're giving that you're receiving. So here I was kind of doing the media, trying to build up um, interest in the book. Then Amazon accidentally canceled all of my pre-orders. And I guess there were hundreds of them. Oh, and it no. was because um, they actually got way more pre-orders than they had expected. And then alerted my publisher over the holidays. But because it was the holidays, my publisher didn't respond. And so then Amazon was like, oh, we don't know that we can guarantee and fulfill these. So they just canceled them all. And then, you know, the official pub date was February 27th. And I was very excited. And I probably had about a week and a half of like the deepest joy I've ever felt in my entire life. And just feeling like, okay, all the bad stuff is behind me. The death threats are kind of chilling out a little bit. Uh, my health is better. Amazon got their shit together. Like, it was just like, okay. I was just excited. Like, I was nervous about the intimacy and the vulnerability of the book. That was my biggest concern. And, you know, my family is going to read about me being sexually assaulted. And, you know, my worst enemies are going to read about me being sexually assaulted. And are they going to weaponize it? Which they did. Um, so it was like that kind of emotional nervousness, not about what if the book flops, um, but really about the, oh my God, people are going to look at me differently now. Right. Uh, and that is going to be an adjustment. And then of course, you know, your book comes out in a, at a particular time in, in the world, in history, your book came into a world where you were expecting festival appearances and media tours and visiting bookstores. Yeah, yeah. I was booked for all of it. And, and the uh, world said, Julie, we have one more thing to throw at you. Yeah. So my official launch, like my first official launch was March 11th, 2020. And I will forever remember it for so many reasons. But one of which was CBC Ottawa's Lucy Van Bolden Barneveld um, sat on, you know, behind her chair on CBC and said, COVID is in Canada. We're going under lockdown. This might be a pandemic. And then walked down the hill to library and archives and said, Hi everyone, buy Julie's book. <laughs> and it was like a death. Like it was so, it was such a weird energy where people were like, I mean, we all remember what that whole time was. And then the next day I was supposed to be launching in Toronto. There was, do we do this? Do we not do this? We ended up doing it at Queen's Books. Um, and I'm so glad we did because it ended up being Queen Books' last event before they had to shut down. And um, it was still a packed house and people came. And the next day, I, I think one day I'm going to have to write about March 13th, 2020, because it was so surreal to be doing media. So I think I did like a couple podcasts in person in Toronto. Then I went to be on CTV's The Social. Um, I was the last segment on the last live show. 
for months and months and months. And it was, they had decided not to have any audience. That was the day that they were like, okay, what if we just don't have an audience? Then I, I just remember I got out of the studio and I walked out on, I think it was Queen Street in Toronto. And it was like, you could have seen tumbleweeds. And I felt like, oh, this is like a dystopian novel. This thing is not going to go well. And then took the train home that night, just raw dogging the air, no mask. Like looking back on it now, I'm like, Jesus Christ. And then everything stopped. And it wasn't just that my book tour got canceled, but also people forget like now looking back, media didn't want to talk about absolutely anything but this, and they weren't equipped to do virtual. I was supposed to be on um, with Sheila Rogers and they were like, we're just running reruns for two weeks until we get this sorted out. So I ended up doing media like into the fall, but it wasn't really, it didn't catch on in the same way, right? Because people were still so distracted by this horrific thing. Yeah, it was like quite literally someone pulling the rug from under me. And there may be a sense of we're in the middle of a global pandemic, do I want to read a book about sexual assault and stalking? Is this the time? Were you feeling that as well? Of Aside from just there's this other thing that's pushing out my book, but it's also pushing out the conversation I want to have and that the book is trying to have with the world and trying to engage with. Yeah, yeah. And even within my sector, you know, I'm, I work as an educator. I pre-pandemic travel over 200 days a year, training thousands and thousands of people and here I was stuck at home, no work. Like I, I lost 90% of my income in one day. I had one contract that could go ahead because it was writing. Um, that was it. I lost all of my income, all of my contacts. I had this existential crisis and I looked around and people were very much in this space of either doom scrolling and wanting to think about and read about nothing but COVID or yeah, I just want to rewatch fluff and uh, remember tiger king like just like uh, yes we, we could talk about julie and her trauma or we could watch tiger king like it was very much this people were so afraid that i think of reading a book about being afraid for some people was comforting but for a lot of people was just like mm -mm, i can't i can't do this and so it, i also didn't have like i just was so bewildered by what had just happened to me um, that I also didn't really kind of wrap my head around how dire the situation was probably until the late summer, kind of early fall is when I was like, oof, oh man, I think my book dream just died a very short day. <laughs> yeah. In that moment where the world decided there is only one issue, there's only one thing to talk about, and that is whether we can get COVID from our, you know, from lettuce or from a park bench or something. In fact, the very thing you are talking about in your book was becoming more and more important. The idea of domestic abuse, domestic violence, sexual violence. We wouldn't know it. Some people obviously knew it, but in the larger cultural conversation, we wouldn't be aware that it wouldn't have occurred to us. We think, well, nobody's assaulting anyone because no one's doing anything. We're just all watching Tiger King. But in fact, that was a real conversation and a real necessary conversation to say, like, this hasn't stopped. In fact, it's gotten worse. Yeah. And that's the personal irony for me is pre-pandemic, aka pre-book launch, um, all the media I did, people were horrified and couldn't believe that what happened to me happens to tons of people and were deeply uncomfortable with the title of my book. 
were really uncomfortable with the idea that resilience is futile. You're not giving people hope. You're telling them to just give up. Women need inspiration, da, 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 da. Meanwhile, had we had the conversation I was trying to have about those two things, we would have understood. Um, but instead, yeah, it took, a, took about probably a, a good eight to 12 months after my book came out, aka after the pandemic, for people to be like, huh, the government's really shoving this just be resilient stuff down our throats. And like, I can only do so much. I can only, you know, Clorox bleach so many cans before I'm like, I got to make a living. I have to pay my bills. And so it was this very interesting thing where the media who had initially and reviewers and, and had been really uncomfortable with this resilience is futile idea started realizing the longer the pandemic went on that, oh, maybe she's onto something. And then all of a sudden there was this conversation about the futility of resilience. And I was kind of in the corner being like, hey, we're trying to have this conversation, <laughs> call me. And that similarly, yeah, we now know that every single year of the pandemic has been deadlier than the last when it comes to femicide. Um, and so we needed to be having a conversation about what happens when you're isolated. And my book is really about that fundamentally, right? It's about how isolated you are when you're being stalked, how powerless you feel, how trapped you feel. And that was a collective experience after the pandemic or during the pandemic that was particularly acute for people who could easily hide the fact that they were experiencing intimate partner violence or stalking or sexual assault because you just saw people through a filter um, on social media or on Zoom. And so it was really frustrating. Like my ego, of course, on the one hand was just like, God damn it, I tried to have this conversation with you people. Why weren't you listening? But then also the activist in me was just like, we lost so much time by not having this conversation as, you know, when we should have. And so um, it's still every year, like 2022 was deadlier than 2021. That was dead. Like it's such a dangerous time to be a woman in this country right now. And it's frustrating that we've been kind of slow in the mainstream to accept that. Fact. So what you're saying is that having a group of celebrities sing Imagine together <laughs> did not solve things? It didn't make things better? Very weirdly. I know it's shocking, but lip service and bad lip syncing <laughs> did yeah. not save us. But even the first budget that came out, the first federal budget that came out after during the pandemic was literally called Building a Resilient Canada. Like it was resilience resilience res and like especially around kids right like the kids are struggling with virtual school well you know kids are resilient and i just was like no they're not <laughs> they shouldn't have to be it's been so interesting to see that conversation evolve from you know the days of promotion to now now i'm getting booked to come into workplaces as almost like a form of activism where employees will say we're struggling and our boss wants us to do resiliency training. So can we have you come in and talk about why that's a terrible idea and why we actually need sick leave and you know any of these kinds of things. So it's been this interesting evolution, but I had to start off by being very unpopular. The notion that kids are resilient, I, I always think about that in, in the terms of like, do you remember when you were a kid and you knew that someone in your class was having a birthday party and you weren't invited, you were one of the only kids not invited, how crushing that was. And you lived with that for weeks and months. That was a horrible, real, you know, trauma of not being invited, just not being invited to a birthday party. Imagine not being invited to any birthday parties. Imagine sitting, not seeing a teacher, just sitting in a room, looking at a screen for, for three years. Get through it, kids. You'll bounce back. You're made of rubber. You, you can land fine. And you're, your bones will reset. It's just, it's horrific. 
Absolutely. And I think what was that, you know, that feminist message in my book that was so important for me to tell was about how really about how we glamorize suffering and how it has these sort of like Judeo-Christian roots of, you know, I grew up going to Catholic school where like, you know, suffering is good for the, like just this bizarre notion that like, that's what builds up your immune system right now. That's why you have people being like, let kids get COVID. It'll make them healthier. Like this bizarre notion, both physically, but also emotionally that you need to suffer in order to build empathy, in order to be connected to other people in your community. Um, and that's just so unbelievably false, but it's this like really pervasive notion that I think a lot of people aren't even aware that they're sort of subscribing to. Um, and I've heard that feedback with my book, right. Of like, oh my God, this was so horrific, but like, look at you now, you wouldn't be there. You wouldn't be doing this work if it wasn't for that. And I'm like, actually I was doing this work when I was dating this person. So like my work predates him, but also don't give him credit. Right. Or who I became today, you know, but I, yeah. again, I don't think people are conscious of that. The bizarre cuckoo bananas things that you hear from people when you write a memoir is fascinating. And a lot of it is sort of rooted in this idea of like false intimacy, like that we have an intimacy together because you know, these quote unquote intimate details about my life, not realizing that it's a one way, like, I don't know you, like you don't, you don't actually know me, but also I have no idea who you are. So um, and if you really did read my book and you think, well, good thing you went through that because you're here today. I'm like, I don't think you read it properly. <laughs> I believe on a, on an abstract level that you can learn through suffering and that adversity makes you strong and all that stuff. But it's a, I feel it's a logical fast fallacy to then go to the next step of like, so then you should have more suffering because <laughs> that will make you better. We touched on this a little bit in the idea of like how long you were doing media for this and how long you were trying to kind of get people's attention. But I'm very curious about writers, and this is sort of the the, the core of this podcast. When did you start feeling that cooling off period with your book? And obviously it's very different for you, but when did you start realizing like, oh, they're talking about fall books now? Oh, I am now officially not a new book anymore. I am not the new thing. And if I tell them, hey, I'm going to do this book club or I'm doing this, they're like, yeah, cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> great. You keep doing that. When did you start getting that feeling like, oh God, I'm, I'm, I'm old? <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, it was the fall. So my book came out spring 2020. I think by the fall, um, I ended up winning the Ontario Speakers Award. Mm -hmm. Um, which was, I didn't even know that I was nominated for. And I, and, um, and it was very bittersweet because um, one of the things that kept happening and still happens with my book is people get the title wrong. So one, if it had been pre COVID times, I would have been invited in person to go to Queens Park to be sitting in Queens Park and get the award. And there's a scala and da da da. Instead, I'm at home on Zoom with my friends watching this thing, thinking oh, there's no way I'm going to win. Um, and resistance is futile by Julie Lalonde won. And so they read the name of my title three times, all wrong, all three times. But that was an unexpected surprise and quite delightful. And then, you know, I got this big, huge, beautiful trophy in the mail. And then I was like, okay, now it's, uh, you know, it's fall 2021. And um, people are looking at, oh, maybe people's book tours will start next year, but not even once thinking that the people who'd launched in 2020 could be part of that conversation, right? It was sort of like, 
well, that ship has sailed onwards for other people who have other books coming. And so it was a very, like, I, like I no exaggeration. There was two weeks where I was like, oh, I'm going to write a book and it's going to be awesome between getting death threats and between COVID. There were two weeks. And then it almost like instantly felt like giving myself false hope. And it's very much tied into my feelings about the pandemic as well, right? Like it was sort of like, I can't hope that people are going to pick up my book. I can't hope that I'm ever going to do this work ever again. I can't hope because it's just crushing to wake up every day and see Trudeau go on the news and talk about how many people have COVID. Like it just was like the world is never going to be the same again. So it was a pretty short period before I kind of was like, okay, I'm old news. Are you having that experience of like people just discovering this book as if it's new, as if it's like, oh, this is exactly the book I was looking for. When did this come out? It's like, oh, a year ago, (laughs) you know, two years ago. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I um, I also won another award um, in 2021 um, that was a, from a U.S., like it was an American award. So that also brought some new audience. And I'm very lucky in that I had already established a career as a speaker. And so I, I plug my book at the end of the talks that I give. Um, you know, some of the events now they want me to talk about my experience and training. So I've been training like police and social workers and um, frontline workers, schools. Uh, and so they'll have cop, like they'll order a bunch and I'll do like a signing at the end of that. So like, it, it seems to be finding legs, especially in like the circles that I had anticipated, which were, you know, the people who are already thinking about violence against women. Um, you know, I've gotten two emails now from police one of which was an Ottawa police officer who was saying like, I read your book and I was horrified and I'm going to think differently about the work that I do now. Um, And so you're like, yeah, that's not, you know, cranking it back up to the bestseller list. That's not bringing in tons of royalties. But when I think about why I wrote this book in the first place, it's that like, it's because again, going back to what we said at the beginning, I'm a very practical person. And so I want people to read this and be better supports. I want survivors to feel validated But I also want people who do this work to think about why aren't we talking about stalking and why aren't we showing up for these people? So that to me has been these sort of like little pockets. But yeah, I would say, I mean, the book came out three years ago and, you know, once a month, at least I'll get like an email or two from someone who read it, who, who, yeah, it stuck them in some way. It taught them something. Um, I've heard from more men than I've ever heard from who talk about like, oh, this happened to my wife or this happened to my girlfriend in high school and like really realizing like, oh, I, this is coming back to me now. Um, And so thank you for giving them a voice. And so it's pockets of stuff, Um, but it's been fulfilling, I think, to still be able to have those conversations with people because I'm already speaking and I just kind of like plug it at the end. So it gives it a kind of natural opportunity to uh, plug it. That's why I always find going back to the idea of this Faustian bargain where your original agent was like, it's got to be this kind of book. Really, if you go with it and you go with that, like you're you get the chance to be a hundred air, you know, like a <laughs> you get to be number 25 on the bestseller list for a week and get, you know, invited to a couple parties versus having a book that you actually believe in and that you put your whole soul into and your beliefs into, it's roughly the same, (laughs) you know? It is. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And like, I think I also have the privilege, I guess, in a way that I never, like, I'm not trying to make a living as a writer. So I can also 
afford to make those choices. I can afford to, you know, I'm working on a second book. I'm taking my sweet time because I'm doing other things at the same time. But again, I'm not trying to make a living as a writer. So I, I didn't go into writing this book thinking, oh, it's for the money. It's for, I am so grateful for past Julie. Cause I took a hundred percent of my advance and I put it towards throwing a party for everyone in my life because it, it felt like a cell like I survived a thing that is statistically impossible and I want I was like this is like a wedding I wrote a book and I survived this thing and so I had this massive massive part and so many people in my life were like you're an idiot four days after that happened the world shut down and so every single person at that party came back to me and was like oh my god my last happy memory before the pandemic was celebrating with you and so that to me was it like I didn't write this book to like make a bunch of money become a public like a writer, like I was like, that's not my, that's not my lane. I'm a speaker and maybe sometimes I'll do some writing on the side, but I do have empathy for people for whom writing is truly their vocation, what they want to do, how they want to make their living that, yeah, you have to make these choices around, do I compromise for a little bit more commercial success or do I, you know, stick to my guns, but then not get an opportunity. Um, so my advice to people all the time is always just like, lower your expectations of what being an author in Canada is like, because like no one's getting Margaret Atwood advances. Um, most of us are not living off of just being a writer. <laughs> um, and that's not to say it's not worth doing. I mean, I'm a huge reader. I love it. I want everyone to write books, but I think you just have to be really realistic that it's a hard market in Canada. And if you compromised and it still didn't hit you're like that can't feel good you know <laughs> mm -hmm. and where I'm and again from where I'm sitting I am so happy with the choices I made um and yeah I didn't publish with Penguin or you know someone but I wrote a book that I'm still really proud of really shows like it's who I am and it's the most authentic way I could have told that story what happened next is produced and edited by me to let me know what you think of this podcast or to suggest a future guest, please go to the contact page at nathanwhitlock.ca. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones. <laughs>